0: Statues speak to us. Uh, they tell a story of of, of achievement, status, they're, they're characters in a certain historical and cultural narrative. it's It's a dominant narrative which increasingly can come under challenge. How, how do we how do we adjust that historical record or or, or should we? And how do we best deal with memorials uh, that commemorate a a dark history? Uh, Who has a right to this public narrative? Interesting questions uh, considered by Robert Bevan, uh, who's an award-winning journalist, heritage consultant, uh, in his new book, Monumental Lies, Culture Wars and the Truth About the Past. He joins us now. Robert, welcome.
1: Hello, Jonathan.
0: We, we, we tend to take a, a fairly narrow view of this idea of, of culture war. It's all social media and gender-neutral bathrooms. But, but, I mean, history itself is a culture war, is it not?
1: It certainly is, and we've seen that actually for decades in Australia with like Black Armband view of history and um, that whole argument going on for a very long time. And similar history and memory wars have been being pursued in Eastern Europe. For quite some years as well. So uh, it's nothing new. But I think what is particularly new is the way that architecture and monuments have been drawn in, so sort of centrally. I mean, monuments have always been contested mm. here and there, but, but, but not quite as centrally to the conflicts.
0: I mean, they're being contested now, but were there not always a, a statement of claim? Isn't that the, the purpose of a monument?
1: Very often uh, it is. um, And you can see that most obviously in things like the Confederate monuments in the US, where lots of them were uh, constructed decades after the Civil War ended. So they weren't markers of grief or war memorials as such. They Mm. were markers of territory under Jim Crow. They were about segregation. That's the most obvious way. But in other places, they can be about um, creating a narrative that serves a nation or a mercantile elite in a city, or in Australia, a particular view of who has a right to the land.
0: You describe them the monuments as, to quote you, as obvious sites of deceit. I, I like that idea there. Of, of I'm intrigued by that idea of, of deceit <laughs> in this. I mean, I can. <laughs> I mean, could <can> you elaborate <laughs> on that? It's, a, it's an interesting point.
1: Well, um, when I say the most obvious sites of deceit, I mean, there's plenty more sites of deceit in the built environment. It's just that in other kinds of buildings that, that, that tell you false stories or false narratives, it's just that statues, in particular, figurative statues, are the most obvious ones. And they're the easiest to get caught out in their lies as well. And I think one of the most Obvious times that a lie is being told is when the statue has been put up years, decades, even centuries after the, the person being commemorated or the event being commemorated is is dead or is over. Um, and there's always some something nefarious going on when that happens. I mean,
0: that's where culture war really kicks in, I guess. I mean, you can you can make a case, can you not, for Statues which are honest representations of a dominant narrative of a moment. That's sort of an interesting historical record, even if we now perhaps see uh, those commemorations in a different light. But yes, when when it's retrofitted, as is the case with all those Confederate statues that you mentioned, so many of them, there's something else going on there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or famously, the statue of Colston in Bristol in the UK uh, that was felled. Tell that us more good. about that story. I mean, that's a that's a fine example of this. Well, that was, you know, Colston died in the early, in the, the 1720s, I think it was, and the statue wasn't put up to the late 19th century. And we have to ask ourselves, why did that happen then? Today, because of, you know, he, he was a s- terrible man and a slave trader who, who used his profits in the city to sort of whitewash his posthumous reputation in terms of, almshouses houses and schools etc but why he was suddenly commemorated and it wasn't just a statue it was buildings it was a stained glass window in the cathedral why did that all happen at the end of the 19th century it wasn't like the confederate case where segregation was an issue because that there weren't many black Bristolians in the 19th century it wasn't about segregation and sort of Local historians who've researched this argue that it's about a a mercantile elite in the city trying to create a paternalistic narrative uh, of which Colston, the cult of Colston, was one part in the face of rising industrial arrests. So it was a class marker more than a racial marker, but is now read in a very different way as you point out there
0: it it's this goes and as you said it goes beyond statues into into other aspects of the, of the built environment i mean that's such an interesting idea i mean it, entire architectural styles never mind details of particular buildings can be can be loaded with cultural meaning
1: well they can but i think it's important to remember that the the meaning is a what we bring to it and b the intent behind the construction and the use of a particular style. Particular assemblages of bricks and mortar don't have innate ideological value. That They are shaped and used and misused for ideological means. A brick means nothing ideologically. It, I mean,
0: some modernists, though, would argue against that. They would say that there is a specific political intent in, in what they are doing architecturally.
1: Oh, absolutely. As I said, intent is important. And, and they, they you know, there was a a belief in a utopianism in the, in the best of modernism that was fixed to a particular style. But, you know, fascism was, in Italy was happy to use modernism as well. The worst, worst excesses of capitalism have used modernism as well. So it, it, it's to try and sort of believe there are fixed values attached to certain styles would be a mistake. I'm tempted to
0: mention there. Tell me that I remember here Donald Trump expressing a great enthusiasm for neoclassicism, for example. I
1: mean, it's well, yes, and that whole beauty myth. Um, well, it happened in the UK as well, not just Boris Johnson's some classical quotes. There, you know, there's legislation being passed through various think tanks pushing a traditionalist agenda in the UK that's finding its way into planning policy under the Trojan horse of beauty, an eternal, fixed, God-given beauty, which just so often happens to be, in their eyes, classicism. And it's also happening in Europe as well, particularly Germany, where bombed city centres are now being recreated sort of from the dead in faux Baroque or classical styles, and often by figures... Linked to the nationalist right or far right, so again, it's about intent and the ideology behind the style, rather than the style itself.
0: And King Charles's fondness for the mock Georgian is perhaps another
1: <laughs> example.
0: Indeed, <of> indeed. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, the, the response to take it back to things like statues, which are a, a, you know a nice pointy end of this this conversation, and and the response to, to, to people's increasing empowerment, and, and I. And I guess the the sense of of hostility to the imposition of that historical narrative that's represented by these things is to tear them down, which which is a fairly blunt response.
1: It's a very understandable response, especially in places like Bristol where for decades campaigners are saying this cult of Colston is not okay and the city council did nothing often because of the objections and uh, obstruction of the same mercantile elite societies that still exist. So people took matters into their own hands. But what I argue in my book is that we have to be very careful about doing that. If we regard not just statues, but monuments and architecture as being part of the material evidence of history that tells us about the past and past society. I mean, buildings can be just as much documents as as texts in a in a book or an archive and we have to have regard to the built environment and to what effect we're having on the historical record and the evidence of the past when we remove and what I, what i argue in my book is that often not always every... I think is a case by case basis but often the best response is not to take away but to add to add new layers at scale and to change the meaning of a place to turn an undeserved site of honor into a site of shame or in, or a site of conscience or a thinking site where the pa- evidence of the past is not removed but the honor doesn't stand and we can and we can sort of look through those layers and uh, to comment on each other are there particular examples where that's
0: been done well do you think?
1: Uh, an example in Bolzano in Alpine northern Italy where one of the largest surviving fascist artworks survives in Europe it's a huge stone frieze showing the uh, the history of the fascist movement from the march of rome on march on rome onwards with um, uh, Mussolini at the centre and the fascist slogan about believing and obeying um, in the middle of it, and uh, Bolzano as a, as a very complicated city with um, German-speaking and Italian-speaking sectors, and it was it was um, uh, a fascist stronghold and then a Nazi stronghold and then. Um, uh, There was an independence movement after the war, hugely complex politically, linguistically, culturally. And and in the recent decade or so, there's been a a determination among some in the city to tackle its problem monuments and not to have fascist artworks and victory arches and the likes um, standing there uncommented upon in the heart of their city. Um, So they organised a very... Clever competition for the for the fascist freeze, uh, which instead of removing the freeze or covering it up permanently, as some wanted to do, especially some politicians, they just added some additional letters hanging in front of it, um, which was a quote by the philosopher Hannah Arendt, mm. who had been uh, obviously a writer about t- totalitarianism, who. And the letters spell out in the three local languages. No one has the right to obey. So it's sort of it's undercutting the um, the um, fascist monument below without without um, hiding the fact that fascism once existed. And in fact, the frieze was finished in 1957, uh, uh, a good lord, <laughs> um, long after the war was over and Mussolini was dead, um, and. And Italy's been really notable for how little it's tackled um, its fascist architectural legacy in comparison to, say, Germany, where a very different approach was taken, or Spain, where uh, the approach has varied over time, the sort of pact of oblivion necessary to move it on from a phalangist state to a democratic state in the 70s.
0: That idea, though, of, of contextualization and, and of reframing uh, of, of monuments and, and buildings, I mean, it's so much more powerful than simply obliteration. I mean, in, in, in a way, obliteration it gives these things a, a, an added power, in a sense. It, it, it I, I don't know if that's... I mean, that's, do you agree with that as an idea? I mean, I, I just the thing to reveal to reveal their truth is is so much stronger
1: well has but yes well it could give them victim status in a way isn't it and this is why they're useful in culture wars because um it creates winners and losers in the heritage game and if you live in a very uh cosmopolitan multicultural society like the UK if you want to divide and rule then uh pitting people's Representational sites of people's heritage against each other is a very effective way of doing that. So, you need to avoid doing that at all costs so that um, the cosmopolitan multicultural isn't seen as a zero sum game of my heritage or yours. So, we need to be much more intelligent about it if we're not going to sort of give those uh, people an in who would try and undermine that.
0: I wonder, too, if the, if, the, if the best response is to sort of culturally retrofit. I mean, you mentioned that the example of the Confederate statues as, a, as an amplification of, 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 of Jim Crow segregation. I mean, for example, in, in, in my city, Melbourne, um, the City Council recently did a survey and they found that of some thousands of monuments, there were, there were three depicting the lives of Melbourneian women. Uh, and they are redressing this by erecting new statues to you know women of, of, of particular notability in the history of the city. I mean, is is that the way to go about it, or is that sort of like a, a, a counter <laughs> retrofit that's? I mean, potentially has as many you know the, the downside aspects as, as things like the the Confederacy statues of, of Jim Crow.
1: I think we have to recognise that the commemorative landscape is on an uneven one. And there are many hidden histories, sort of to women's achievement, the black experience, or queer histories, or, or and various people who 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 don't have the power or influence over the centuries to see their lives and deeds commemorated. And so, if we if you leave that commemoration commemorative landscape unchanged, you leave that on balance, imbalance unchanged, which. I think is problematic, but mm-hmm. uh, you are also in danger of trying to. In when you want to address that, you're perpetuating traditional notions of maybe individual genius, or or kind of kind of retrograde on traditional ideas of commemoration, which may not be suitable for this century. And we may have to think of clever ideas of of, of Dealing with that, um, and often it's kind of a top-down approach. I mean, cities like Canberra, Ottawa, often New World capitals have um, often or Washington DC. They have curated programs of what they are uh, going to commemorate on state land, and uh, Ottawa, for instance, uh, makes it is sort of explicit about wanting to rebalance that landscape to include more First Nations, more women, etc. And that's no bad thing in itself, but I find that the whole practice of commemoration in this way is hugely problematic and full of grey areas and misunderstandings. Some would argue that we, maybe we just are too involved in memory altogether and some commentators argue, you know, sweep it all the way, the good and the bad, which I don't agree with, because you're sweeping away the evidence of history as well as things of various aesthetic qualities. But um, but it's not as simple as just filling in the gaps. Mm. It's, it's a beautifully complex area, Robert. <laughs> it is, and something I've been kind of involved in for quite a while. Previously, looking at the fate of... Um, Monuments and architecture in conflicts where they're targeted for destruction for you know iconoclasm often as part of cultural genocide and, and those kind of situations. And this is kind of the peacetime equivalent where the questions some questions are very similar and some are very different. But essentially it's you know uh, it, it's often about power and conflict. Um but I'd also say that we often give monuments way too much power over us. They mm. don't actually matter that much. Uh, they, you know, in comparison to say they have symbolic power rather than and and, and what I argue that it's important not to mistake sim- symbolic change for actual change. And people like activists in Charlottesville have made the same point. You can remove a Confederate general from in front of the uh, Charlottesville courthouse, but the legal mechanisms going on inside, the new Jim Crow, the Castle Jim Crow, continues unchanged. Mm. And so we can remove can bring the illusion of change as well.
0: A very good leveling point. Robert, thank you so very much. You're welcome. Robert Bevan, uh, is author of Monumental Lies, Culture Wars and the Truth About the Past, which, as discussed, is is a complex matter. This is Blueprint on ABCRN. ABCRN helps you understand the world.
1: Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.